Well, good morning. Our reading is from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. And if you're using the Visitor's Bible or the Church Bible, uh, it is on page 1014. That's 1 Peter, chapter 1, beginning to read at the first verse. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Well, let me pray for us all. Our Heavenly Father, as uh, Graham rightly prayed earlier, within our church family this morning, there are those who are going through a very difficult time, and we pray for them again. There are those amongst us uh, for whom life is both good but equally challenging. There are those that have found joy this week, and there are those of us who are finding walking with you both wonderful but often difficult. So for all of us this morning, please, Heavenly Father, may your word be our guide, your Holy Spirit our teacher, and your glory be our supreme concern. Amen. Well, I'm pretty sure you've, you've, you've heard the announcement. Mind the gap between the train and the platform edge. The gap is, is, is hazardous, and there have been some very serious injuries, and I hope you've, you've not experienced that. Wisdom dictates that we, we exercise due care. 
There's another gap about which we really should be aware, and it too is hazardous. And there have been some, some serious injuries. Wisdom dictates that we exercise care. This gap is what one Christian writer calls the gospel gap. The gap is the, how can I put it, the in-between experience between our past and our promised future. Most of us understand the gospel answers our past. Christ died for our sins, and um, our guilt and shame has been dealt with. That's our past. And equally, most of us are fairly sure that the gospel promises us a future, that one day we will die and we will be with the Lord, or one day the Lord indeed will return and we will be with Him. So our future is, is well answered by the gospel. But between the past and the future, sometimes, for some of us, it seems there's a, a kind of gap. Does the gospel, and how does it do so, does the gospel connect to questions of, for example, human worth and dignity, not just in the past or in the future, but, but right here and now? How does the gospel enable us to navigate through the the complexities of living in a society today when things seem so topsy-turvy. The gospel gap feels like we're, we're not necessarily sure how do we connect with the realities of the whole of life. But here is one of the fabulous features of the New Testament letters, what is often called the epistles. The letters are the apostolic application of the gospel to practical, everyday situations. Yes, of course, uh, the letters do look back to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Of course they do. Indeed, the future hope of Christ's return is always in sight in these letters. But equally, there is a wonderful attention to the present circumstances. There is no gospel gap in the New Testament letters. For example, look with me this morning at these opening verses of, of 1 Peter. This is the Apostle Peter's letter to a group of Christian churches in what we today call Western Turkey. You can see the, the ge geography in verse 1. These were um, provinces of the Roman Empire, and we think Paul, uh, P Peter that is, uh, is writing from Rome around the year 63 A.D. And actually, the letter has an overall stated aim. We know what Peter is up to uh, in his intention in sending this letter. Look on with me to chapter 5, uh, verse 12. It's always helpful when we know what it is that we're supposed to be reading. Chapter 5, verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, most likely it was his colleague, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. But if we are to stand firm in the true grace of God, which I think is shorthand for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, what does that actually look like? Now, this letter certainly involves particular ethics and actions, and you start to pick that up in the latter part of chapter 1. 
But there is something in this letter with which Peter begins that people like me and maybe people like you, we might easily miss. Peter begins with two, uh, how can I put it, foundational or fundamental aids to help us. First, Peter calls his readers to, to reframe, refocus their identity. And second, to reinterpret, reinterpret their actual experience in the here and now. Only then, only then, by having the clear understanding of their identity and how do I interpret my experience, only then can they move on to live out the practical realities of gospel discipleship. Only by knowing who we are now and how we are to experience life now will we be able to stand firm in the true grace of God in our everyday practical living so that we don't need to feel like there's a gospel gap. So first, verses 1 to 5, here's how to see your identity right now. I guess there's a, how can I put it, there's a contrast. There's a, on one hand and on the other hand, sort of pattern in these five verses. On one hand, they are women and men scattered. That's that word dispersion um, in verse 1 throughout some Roman provinces. These provinces were essentially administrative centers or districts of the Roman Empire, which means that each province was was a funnel for money, for trade, for people, ideas, and religions coming from Rome and probably going back to Rome. So Rome and the empire, though these people would never probably have ever been to Rome, the Roman Empire dominated. And therefore, Christians in the churches throughout these regions, on one hand, lived normal lives when it came to work or trading in the local markets, and in everyday social interaction. Christians spoke the same language or languages as anyone else. They shared the same cultural framework, and they experienced the same joys as well as challenges. They were easily identifiable as those living in the Roman Empire. They were far from Rome, but they looked like anyone else on one hand. But on the other hand, look with me at verse 1, their true identity, according to Peter, is something radically different than simply living in a Roman province. Peter identifies them in verse 1 as elect exiles of the dispersion. In verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's their identity. Oh, he goes on though. Who they are who they are now is rooted in who God has called them to be. That's what that word foreknowledge. It isn't simply that he simply knew ahead of time how the movie would work out. He graciously, in mercy, but in sovereignty, called them to himself. God the Father sent into their hearts, do you spot it? Sent into their hearts and minds the sanctifying or setting apart work or ministry of the Holy Spirit. By the Spirit, they would obey Jesus Christ. By Christ's shed blood, in verse 2, on their behalf, there is forgiveness. This means, as Peter expresses it in verse 3, these are women and men. Yes, they, 
they look very provincial in one sense, but they are those who, according to verse 3, His great mercy, God has caused them to be born again. In short, their identity, who they are right now, is based on the gospel of Christ. Rome does not define them. Not anymore. God does. Still, there is a tension. Do you spot it again in verse 1? They're feeling like they are exiles. And later on in chapter 2, verse 11, sojourners and exiles again. These words connotate the diaspora, which is that word dispersion, which means scattering. Ancient Israel, um, during the judgments of both the Assyrian era and the Babylonian era, were dispersed, and they continued to be dispersed throughout the Roman Empire eventually. But there's that sense that they were being, in this letter, there's a sense if we read the letter that these churches felt very much displaced or sidelined. They were being marginalized uh, within their workplace. You can see it in the letter or within their former social connections. And for some women, perhaps, they were feeling marginalized even in their marriage because their husband was, was not a follower of Christ. Peter doesn't deny any of those tensions, but he won't let their, those tensions define their identity. He reframes, he re gets them to see it in a different way their very identity, and that is because of the gospel, verses 10 to 12. The gospel concerns salvation. It's there in the end of verse 9. You are obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I think we probably need to unpack that just for a moment because the word salvation sounds like it only refers to what is to come in the future because of what's been done in the past, and that is true. But Peter applies the idea of salvation to their present experience. Salvation is, is not, I want to say this carefully, it is not simply your past is forgiven or simply your future is promised. It, it of course, includes that. It has to do with the grace, the true grace of God about which the prophets were concerned in verse 10. And grace is not only for your past or future, grace shapes your present reality, especially when it comes to who are you as a woman or a man if you're in Christ. And the gospel is universal. In other words, it's, it's, it goes all around the world in its scope and its application. And again, the, the good news about Christ Jesus changes lives not only among those to whom Peter wrote this letter, but others around the world, in chapter 5, verse 9, Peter will refer to others who are sharing in Christ's sufferings. He'll refer to the church in Rome, chapter 5, verse 13, who were likewise chosen. Now, because the gospel is universal, as the Holy Spirit sends it out, then the application of the gospel, the application of the gospel fits into every context. That's a mouthful. Because the gospel is, is sent out by the Spirit, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ, first His sufferings and then His glories, it is God's true grace. Because it is sent out by the Spirit into all the world, 
then the application of the gospel fits into all the world and into every context. And that includes you and me this morning here at ENC. The good news in Christ for you bestows, if you are trusting in Christ, a forgiveness of your past and a forgiveness in your present and a hope for your future, but it also bestows right here and now an identity for you. Now, I appreciate the whole idea of identity could sound like a bit of navel-gazing or psychobabble, and I get that, except it is neither. Identity matters because out of our sense of identity, we navigate through life. may not be conscious of that, but think about it. Our relationships, our, our choices, and even our unaware values are influenced by our sense of identity. I mean, we take our cues about our worth from others. This starts from infancy at our mother's breast, the way she looks at us when she's nursing us. It carries on through the rest of our life. None of us is so assured and independent we are free from the opinions of others. The problem is other people, and I say this very, very, um, I hope, carefully and respectfully and, and with a little bit of fear, the problem is other people, even the best parents, the best friends, the most faithful spouses, they're not free from their own issues when they come to relate to you. Their own insecurities and their own neediness. And certainly political systems like Rome place value upon particular behavior, don't they? Conformity. And if you are conforming to the state, then you're safe in your identity. Identity, therefore, is never totally self-defined. However hard a person, particularly today, tries to find her own identity and create her own identity. But true freedom, again, this is what the gospel is bringing, as well as it deals with the past and the hope of the future. The gospel brings true freedom when God himself who loves us freely, and God has no agenda to control or manipulate us out of his own personal neediness, when he freely and graciously and wonderfully in his Son, by his Spirit, gives us a new identity. That the identity he sees us in is in Christ. It doesn't mean we lose our individuality. It's actually becoming our true self in a relationship with a new community. Uh, you know the passage later on in chapter 2. Peter says, this is who you are. It's breathtaking. Chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. He's employing Old Testament references to Israel and now says to both Jew and Gentile, not just in the ancient world, but to those of us here this morning, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, it's only by seeing your true identity will practical discipleship, in other words, the specifics of what you are to do in life that Peter will address in the rest of this letter. It's only then that either you'll be freed from a guilt, thinking, I can never live up to this, or from the arrogance that might come to people like me, yeah, I'm doing pretty well. You're set free from that. In other words, this is how you can stand firm in the true grace of God. Ah, well, it's just my identity. Thank you, Peter. But you can almost hear what some in those churches to whom Peter is writing might be saying. Something like this. But Peter, you tell us this is who we are. This is our identity. But we're experiencing stuff in our life right now which calls everything into question. And again, just looking around the room, and I don't know you all that well, but I know enough to be able to say this with a a legitimacy, that some of the experiences that, that you're going through, well, that we're all going through, that the church in the West is going through, we could look at today's church and we could, we could look at 1 Peter and say, yeah, there's, there's something in agreement here. The optics look similar. We too are, are strangers in the world. I didn't say we're strange. <laughs> well, I, I am. Uh, but we're strangers in the world. Perhaps at home or at school. You, you increasingly feel like, I don't... Something doesn't feel right. There's like a, uh, you know how when you get a pebble in your shoe and you're walking along and it's, this doesn't feel right. And to be sure, in Scotland, we're not experiencing the trials churches in other parts of the world face. But some of you are experiencing the kinds of criticism, even the slander to which Peter refers later on in this letter. Some of you are quite literally this morning dealing in verse 6 with grief by various trials. So I think you and I do need some way to to sync our true identity now with the kinds of experiences we face. Otherwise, if we don't, then we will feel this kind of gospel gap. We know our past is certain and our future is certain, but I have no idea how I'm supposed to live right here and now. And that leads me to my second and final point, verses 6 to 8. Here's how to interpret your experience right now. And again, there's that on one hand and on the other hand. Again, on one hand, as we just noted, it feels to them as if they are exiles. And you will see throughout this letter, there are some references to to social conflicts, both mild and, and some very harsh. Some Christians were being slandered. Other Christians are threatened. Some face suffering. And these experiences may well have led some in the church to feel a kind of tension between what they learned from the gospel, preached to them, as, and now they're, they're saying, well, that was the gospel, but why am I experiencing suffering for Jesus? I didn't sign up for the suffering bit. Which is why in chapter 4, verse 12, Peter has to say to them, don't be surprised 
Well, you don't tell someone not to be surprised unless they are being surprised. Now, Peter, in this letter, Peter doesn't airbrush out the difficulties and tears. Peter's practical theology doesn't say, well, you know, it is your fault that you're going through all this, this, this hard time. He doesn't say, now God is trying to teach you a very important spiritual lesson, and that's why you're going through this hard time. He doesn't say to them, you've displeased God, and that's why you're suffering. In other words, instead, he, he looks suffering right in the eye, Peter does, and he puts things in a gospel-formed reinterpretation of their experience. You know how you go to uh, have your eyes examined, and uh, they, they slip all these these sort of lenses in front of your eyes, and they say, does that look better? Does that look better? That's what Peter is doing. He's saying, let me, let me put in front of your, your, the eyes of your heart, if you will, as you look at what you're going through right now, let me put the right lens in front of your eyes. Notice, for example, in verses 3 to 5, and this is, uh, this is a, a, a fairly complicated construction, but let's see if we can look at it more closely. Peter begins by blessing, praising, a Hebrew way of extolling and honoring who God is. He praises God or blesses God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's important. God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who, who was raised by the Father from the dead, and assures Peter, in the gospel, Christians are united with Jesus in his resurrection. Not just one day they'll be united, that is true, but even here and now, in a way, they are united in Christ's resurrection. And this comes by God's mercy. All Christians receive a new birth into a new life. And with this new life, there's a promised inheritance. Now, it may be Peter is echoing the promises that God gave to Israel saying, there will be a land that you will one day receive, and that is going to be your inheritance, a land of safety, provision, security, and home. And that makes sense, I think, of Peter's use of the words uh, exile and sojourners. Whatever it is he's doing, his point is clear. This inheritance, again, in this you... Yet you are being kept by God's power and being guarded through faith for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. But you have gained in verse 4 an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It is unfading. It can't be destroyed. It can't be taken away from you by some other power, even the power of Rome. It is eternal security, belonging, restoration, and well-being, and that is yours. That is your inheritance. But in verse 5, until then, they are passing through life by faith. But they are shielded, they are protected, they are guarded by God's power. Nothing can destroy them, even if for a little while it pains them. This is because their salvation is ready to be revealed, a theme repeated in this letter. And notice how Peter's assurance gives them a healthy reinterpretation. In other words, 
that lens that drops in front of your eyes and you go, yes, I can, I can see everything now. It's there in verses 6 to 9. Even while grieved by various trials, they experience joy. It's not happiness, but joy. Happiness is typically trumped by, by hard circumstances. Joy isn't. Joy is so closely linked with Christ who first suffered and then was raised to glory, but first the suffering. And by faith, you're linked to a suffering Savior and are carried by Him closely in, uh, in verse 7. And if you're carried by Christ, then these trials are not outside of God's sovereign care. They're used by God, but not for punishment or even to teach you some great spiritual lesson. As much as supremely, these trials prove the genuineness, the authenticity. It's as if God lovingly places his people and says, look at them. Their trust in me was not in vain. They weren't pretending because they went through some very hard times. And then, now watch, this is staggering. Not only does this refinement bring out the profound worth of a Christian faith, but actually it brings forth praise, glory, and honor when Christ Jesus is revealed. Now, this is a staggering surprise. Of course we say, yes, when Jesus is revealed at the end of history, he will receive praise, glory, and honor. But Peter is saying, yes, but his people who have gone through some very difficult trials, when Christ is revealed and the genuineness of their faith is revealed, they will receive glory, praise, and honor from the king himself. In other words, nothing that you go through is wasted. Nothing is, is, is dismissed by Christ in his victory and says, yes, I know, but it's all about me. He honors his people. Because he loves his people. You see that again more clearly in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, where Peter can say, as a fellow, as a witness to Christ's suffering, who will share with you, when the king returns, you and I, we will receive a crown of glory. See, even in trials, when of course they don't physically see Jesus, but they love him, they love him because Jesus loves them. And they believe in him because he's faithful and trustworthy in every circumstance. And that brings, it's a, it's a, it's a play on words. It brings an inexpressible joy. In other words, if you can't express it, it's so joyful you can't even find the right words for it. The future is certain. And if it's so for these first recipients so too it is for you and me. Isn't, isn't this surely the things into which angels long to look? Isn't that little phrase talking about the gospel and how the gospel affects women and men all through the ages? How those who were once lost and rebels following ancient patterns have been saved through God's mercy and not just have a, their past dealt with, but also their future, but also their present. 
Angels long to look on this. How can you do this? Surely that's, that's the case. Do I always see my identity as Peter shows me? Not always, to be very honest with you. I suspect I'm not the only one in this room. But isn't it more important? Isn't it more important to us that God always sees us in Christ as Peter shows us? This is the joy the gospel brings. Do I always see my experience as life in life as Peter frames it? I'm afraid not. Oh, when, it, when things go well, I see it exactly as Peter sees it. But when things are challenging, I, I wobble. I don't stand firm. And again, I, I suspect I'm not the only one in the room that struggles with that. But the Lord will ensure His purposes are achieved through all our experience. And that may cause, yes, from time to time, our questioning of our identity and, and therefore slipping back to be conformed to what others might expect of us or what modern society expects of us. And we might struggle to understand the kind of circumstances through which we are passing, but they are never beyond God's mercy and care. See, this gospel gap is not real, it's, and it's utterly unnecessary. The true grace of God, this is what it is. Stand firm in it. We can mind the gap. Let's pray before we sing our final song. In our need, He walks beside us, ears alert to every cry. Watchful eyes to guard and guide us, love that whispers, it is I. Good shall triumph, wrong be righted. God has pledged His promised word, so with ransomed saints united, join to praise our living God.